boss, boss, I'm done building the tile. Great. All right, let's take a look. Flylock, what is this? It's a tile. I built it right there. Yeah, and what is on the tile? That's a... It's a green serpent, clearly. Yes. Did yes. I tell you to build... look underneath that tile? Does that look like a green serpent to you? Um, no. No, it looks like a blue idol, not a green serpent. I swear to gods, this is why we don't hire level one workers. Ugh. I still get my cocoa, right? Fine. Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B, back from a break, and this here is Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to be reviewing Teotihuacan, a worker movement and engine building game about the Mesoamerican temples. Yeah. But first, we're not going to talk about, well, we're sort of going to talk about what we've been playing. We're going to talk very specifically about a game that we received as a preview Mm -hmm. uh, called Lots that we have been playing and give you a a quick overview of it. Yeah, this should be coming to Kickstarter in September. So keep your eye out for this. But Lots pretty much is a game where you are being, you know, construction people building a tower based on a specific size and shape of a lot. So you're doing this by placing blocks, and if you've played Tetris, these are very similar to that. You have the same general shapes, not all of them, but like most of them. And it's pretty much just four cubes placed in different arrangements. Anything from a square to a line, the T, the S-ish curve shape kind of thing, the L, all that kind of stuff. It's a pretty quick and simple game. You start off the game by rolling a die, and this is also what you do at the beginning of every turn, and the die has all the different types of blocks on it. As you take whatever blocks you roll into your supply, and since you started with one and then get one every turn, you always have two to choose from. You then get to place one of these blocks, and you get points based on adjacency to the same color. Each of the shapes has a certain color. Now, if you touch one green square to another green square, that's two points. If you touch the uh, one green square to two other green squares, that's four, so on and so forth. You also get points by completing floors. So you have to fill in the shape of the lot on one level, and whoever is finishing that level is going to get five points. And one of the things that you have to be careful of is you can't like overlap any areas that are not part of the construction zone Mm -hmm. of the lot. You have to always be within them so you really have to finagle how you're going to put all these pieces together in order to get the most points right yeah and i mean the spatial element sort of the dexterity element obviously because you're you're working with a vertical tower kind of jenga-esque is a big deal and you're wanting to make sure that you don't drop any blocks because if any block falls on your turn you still have to finish placing your block uh, but you don't score any points for that turn Mm-hmm. As I found out, you can set someone else up for some really good points. It's true. If they draw the block that you dropped, for example. But play will continue back and forth in this manner until one of two things happens. Either a certain point threshold is reached in a two-player game that's 40. In a game with up to four players, that scales down. I believe it's 30 at four players. So mm-hmm. it's nice to you know that you don't have to worry about the game dragging on too long as more people are competing for points. Or the other end game condition is when any three piles are completely empty. So you're going to be rolling a die 
And that's, you know, obviously there's some randomness. Maybe in a particular game, you'll just run dry on yellows. And then if you run out of three different types of blocks, the game ends immediately. And whoever has the highest score at that moment wins the game. Or it technically ends at the end of that player's turn. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that makes sense. They, they should get to place the block that they require. Exactly. Exactly. In addition to all this, you also have some cards. And these cards, they give you some benefits. Most of the time, it's both point scoring as well as affecting the tower in some way. Some of them can be affecting the other players in some way, like trading blocks or getting half the amount of points as someone else did. But you can also like remove certain blocks from the tower, place something as if it were a different color and score based on that, etc., etc. So those are pretty useful. And you start the game with one of those. But one of the really cool things about the game is how you get more. And this is through a catch-up mechanic that works for both these cards and also these little cubes that are really just one of the four cubes of the other, other pieces that are like these little purple cubes. And what happens is that the last player to get onto that space that either shows the cube or shows the uh, hard hat, which is for the cards, that is the person who gets that benefit. So it's a catch-up mechanic you get these additional things that will help you build the tower more or get more points and catch up and get back into the game. Right, which is a really nice mechanic. So, you know, it doesn't just lead to one person snowballing out of control. You've got a real nice sort of leapfrogging, at least in our experience. So you're going to be trading back and forth. Sometimes, you know, I'm going to be in the lead. I'm not getting any cards. And then Jacob surpasses me with those cards. But now I'm getting cards. So I think it's a very well-designed system. I think it's it's important for a game like this where it's pretty easy for a person to have a monster 20-point turn yeah. and otherwise run away with it. So very good inclusion there. And otherwise, I mean, I think the game just feels really good in a lot of different ways. I think the sort of dexterity element is satisfying. Like, it's inherently tense, Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so you're, you're like, oh man, is it, am I going to knock something over? And you got to, you're looking for opportunities to fill in spaces that other people might be unwilling or unable to do because, you know, either they didn't get the right type of tile or they thought that it was going to be too tight a squeeze. So you have to balance risk versus reward. And I think it's done very effectively in this game. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think especially when you have like a few more players, then you really got to like, you know, I only have one chance to get this one thing and then because someone else is going to get it otherwise. So let me like really try to finagle how this is going to work and like balance something in such a way. You can also have some really fun towers that are almost combative where it's like, I'm going to do this just so that you can't do this mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. which you do see what everyone has in their hands and their like, you know, storage areas to put out. So like, you know, if you see the person in front has like a red one, you don't really want to set up a red play for them, that right. kind of stuff. Right. So that can be a lot of fun. And I mean, the game plays in 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, it's very quick. It's extremely quick. And, you know, I normally don't really like the, the randomness, but I, a lot of the things that this game does actually mitigates that, including the speed of the game. Like, you know, it's a very quick game, but also you always have two to choose from. They might be the same one because luck is still luck and a die is still a die. But you always have two to choose from. You can like, have those cards that modify something, that, that change something, that can really help you mitigate a bad roll, mm -hmm. for example. But I think one of the other fun things about the game is that there can never be any ties, even on any points. Right, yeah, that's a clever system. Yeah, so pretty much if you land on the space that is occupied by someone else, you actually bump them up. So 
you give them an extra point when you're doing that. And so it's just like, you got to make sure to try not to do that because you know, that could bump them over the edge or, or whatever it is. Right. Well, and it's also a unique system. Like a lot of times you'll see, you know, if, if you would land on a space that someone else is on, Oh, you just can't move there. Or, you know, of course you sharing the space is pretty common, but I don't think I've ever seen a game where you bump up the person that you've displaced. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Exactly. Obviously, this is a preview, so, you know, it's still being polished. You know, there might be some rules changes. There might be some fundamental mechanical changes. One thing that I will say is that, obviously, given that it's not just a spatial game, but a spatial game that relies on some pretty precise precise positioning. I didn't expect that to be a tongue twister. Um, (laughs) The components are going to have to be really, really high caliber. They, the publishers, are going to have to make sure that they are very, very careful and very, very exacting in how they construct these pieces. So as you're looking at the Kickstarter campaign, make sure that that's something that you're looking out for. Obviously, given this preview copy, we can't know that, but that's just something that I would think about going forward. But overall, this is an interesting game, something to keep an eye on. It's got a lot going for it in terms of design. It's got a lot going for it in terms of flavor, I guess, of it. The artwork is very inclusive. There's, you know, hijabi women, there's people in wheelchairs, which is fantastic to see and overall i think just a solid game yeah i agree i think that it's a lot of fun i got to play it first time at origins i got to play the giant version which you did yeah um, so if you get a chance to play it at any point if you meet up with the designer uh it's so much fun like the giant foam blocks are amazing but i'm still looking forward to how it it's gonna feel with the nice wooden pieces so they're not using plastic or anything like that i am curious to see how well the machine they're going to be just because it is such a big part of the game and if you can't like slip them easily underneath mm-hmm. other ones it can be a little bit difficult but i have faith in them what i've seen so far has been very positive like from any design aspect all all in all i really do enjoy the game so i'd highly recommend checking it out when it comes to kickstarter yeah well there you go keep a lookout for that in the next couple of months and that's a preview of lots Alrighty, now let's get to building and talk about Teotihuacan. Yeah. So Teotihuacan is a worker placement game. Sort in, of. Yeah, sort of. In which you are building the central pyramid of the titular city of Teotihuacan. And, you know, you're building up this temple by gathering resources, improving your workers, and in general, just what you would expect. Yeah. Two to four players. Well, technically one to four players. I would say it takes mm, two to three hours for a full game. And yeah, let's get into the mechanics. So the reason that I sort of said sort of uh, about worker placement is that it's actually more of a worker movement game. True. So your workers are going to exist on a board, which is comprised of eight spaces, each representing a different action. And on your turn, you're going to move your workers around the board. You start with three workers, you can get up to four, and on your turn, you can move any one of them up to three spaces. So one, two, or three spaces. So you have a lot of flexibility about how you can move around the board, but you're still fundamentally moving in a clockwise direction around a board of specific actions in a specific order. Yep. And the spaces that you can move to, one of the cool things is that you will randomize them at the beginning of the game. And these spaces pretty much give you different actions that you can take. When you land a worker on a space, you choose one of three things to do. The first thing being gather cocoa. So cocoa is how you pay your workers. AKA money. Pretty much. You will get uh, the amount of cocoa equal to 
the number of different colored dice slash workers, because we didn't mention that, on that space plus one. So if there's already a yellow and a blue and I place my yellow on there, I would get three cocoa because that's a yellow and a blue plus one. The second thing that you can do is you can worship. And this means that you lock one of your dice onto the temple space on that tile. And you can then get either one or both of the benefits going up on a temple track or getting a tile that has like resources, collectibles, other things like that, that will be beneficial in the long run. Right. And it's worth noting that not every single action tile will have a worship space that's restricted mm-hmm. to only certain action tiles. And then the third one, and the one that you're going to be using probably most often, is do the basic action of that tile. And these are really just, you know, gathering different kinds of resources, building the pyramid, decorating the pyramid, getting technologies that will help you get all these, or building up the house of the nobles and that kind of stuff. So it's that type of thing. Those are the actions that you can do. But I think the most interesting thing is about how the workers work. Right. So Jacob sort of alluded to it there. The workers are not represented by meeples. They're actually represented by six-sided dice. Uh, And this is because the number of pips that is currently showing on any given die is essentially the level or rank of the worker. So as you're moving your dice around, your workers around, you're activating actions which may have better outcomes or more efficient outcomes if your workers are of a higher level. So you're wanting to get those workers to a higher level, which is done by performing actions, after which you'll typically have an opportunity to level one or more of them up. But you don't want to level them too aggressively because of a mechanic called ascension. So when a worker reaches six, it gets a little abstract here. Bear with me. The worker that is represented by that die is considered to ascend. They're removed from play. And instead, you turn the die back to a one on its face, and you put it on the starting action space. So essentially, that worker, that individual, has passed on, and you get bonuses for that. So you can get Coco, you can advance on uh, temple tracks that give you bonuses. You get bonuses every time that happens, but it does mean that your worker's value is going to reset. So you got to be careful to manage sort of the ebb and flow of oh, I need workers of a high level so I can activate these good spaces, but I also want to get bonuses for ascending. So that's one aspect of worker management. The other is that many of the actions will also scale based on the number of your workers already present on a space. So if I perform an action with one worker, even if that worker is level five, I'm only going to get a relatively small benefit. Whereas if I perform an action on a space that already has two of my workers two of which are level fives and one of which is level three, that's going to be a really good action. Yeah. So there's some advantage to sort of keeping things flexible and moving your workers around the board so that you can activate any space you need when you need it. But there's also a lot to be said for stacking up and getting really, really powerful actions on the spaces that you choose to utilize. Though of note here is that the action is always taken of the lowest of the workers that's on there. So if you have two fives and a one, you're taking the level one action for three dice. Right, which is still going to be better than the level one action for one die, Yeah, but not as good as the level five action for three dice. Yeah, exactly. So there's a little bit of a balancing mechanic there. And then one of the key actions is, of course, building, building the pyramid. And now when you build the pyramid, 
you need to have the resources for each of the tiles that you're placing. And then based on the number of workers that you have there, you will place a certain number of tiles. Each of these tiles has four symbols on them. And when you place them, first of all, you already have a seated like start for the pyramid, but also on the very bottom, you, you have the symbols and each tile that you place has these symbols. And whenever you match those symbols to the ones that are underneath, when you place a tile, uh, you get a point for each one that you match. So if you matched all four of them, that would be a four additional points. Also, these symbols can be colored. So there are the, the three different temple tracks. They have the red, the blue, and the green color. The symbols can be colored one of those three colors. If you place a tile that has one of those colors and you match the symbol to the symbol underneath it, you not only get a point, but you also get to move up on that temple track. That's a lot. But you will also get points for every tile that you place based on where you place it. Right. So, Even if you don't match anything. Yeah, you don't match anything. You still get a certain number of points for placing a tile. And those are based on the different levels that they are. So, you you know, you've got your base, then first level, second level, and the top of the pyramid. Each of them are a different number of points. And that's very much a big part of point scoring in general. Oh, yeah. You can also decorate these pyramids by uh, using the decorations, which also function in the same rules with the placement and the colors as the blocks. Right. Now, when someone places that last block on the pyramid, the game is over. It yep. ends at the end of that person's turn. Boom. That's it. It's gone. That is our great work. It has been completed. Your wonder has been built. <laughs> uh, references here. See end. And then once the game is completed, you look at who has the most points. There may be some in-game scoring conditions, which we'll cover later, and whoever has the most points wins. Surprise. Right. There is another way that the game can end. Each round takes place over a certain number of turns. At the end of each turn, you advance what's called the Eclipse Track. So you're taking a dark tile and you're moving it towards the space where it will cover the light tile. However, that number, the number of turns in a round, is going to decrease every round. So there's a maximum of three rounds. And additionally, there are things that you can do during the game which will advance that track. So every time a worker ascends, you advance that track. There's various other bonuses and things that you can take that will also advance that track. So the game can end by reaching the third eclipse phase, which can happen deceptively fast if somebody's going for a really ascension-heavy strategy mm -hmm. or doing a lot of things that advance the, the eclipse track. So if you're banking on building the pyramid to its completion... Do keep in mind that someone can end the game prematurely. Yep. They can rush you to an end. And that's a general overview of how the game is played. This game does have a lot of rules, so I'm sure that we missed some stuff, but I think that that should give you a bit of a feel for what is a part of this game. Right. I mean, there's everything from like the temple tracks, which can give you different bonuses when you move up them. Uh, some end game bonuses there. Every round after every eclipse, you score points. Every time you build, you score points. Every time you you build a residence for a noble, you score points. Things like that. There's a lot of different ways to get points. There's a lot of different ways to get resources and things like that. All in all, I think it's a very interesting game. I mm -hmm. think one of my favorite parts is definitely the worker advancement. Yeah. I mean, well, that's so unique. Yeah. You know, I can't think of any other game where you've got your workers that are actually themselves increasing in level, increasing in power, increasing in efficiency. Mm -hmm. So the ability to move your workers around the field, strategically advance them and strategically deploy them, I think is something that's really unique to this game and 
pretty cool in execution. Uh, yeah. You know, it sort of introduces some levels of strategery mm-hmm. that other games, even games with sort of similar worker placement, worker movement mechanics, can't really reach because they lack that element. So very, very cool there. Yeah, especially because, you know, you have to be careful about which worker you're moving when and that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, I have a worker that can move from here to here, but, you know, that's a one and he's not going to actually give me any resources mm-hmm. versus, you know, it being a five, which gives you a lot, but then you're losing that worker because of the sends and you're changing it to a one and that kind of stuff. So it definitely has some some really interesting strategic considerations when you're moving these workers around. And it, that, I think, gets amplified by the fact that setup for this game is extremely variable. Right. So when you start the game, the first thing that you do is you pretty much shuffle up the boards. So you have two tiles that are always going to be in the same place. They're printed there. And that's like the number one, number eight tiles, I believe. Mm-hmm. That is the building and the the worshiping and the temple kind of tiles. Yeah. The rest of them, so you've got the other six, get all shuffled together and placed randomly around the board. So, you know, one game you could have the stone right next to the building and you're going to just go like, you know, stone build, stone build, stone build, like that kind of stuff. Other times they could be across the the map and like, you know, you have to go all the way around every time or like that might even be better sometimes because if it's right next to it, then you've got to figure out what to do with your other like movements because you can only move three around. But that's not the only randomness in setup. You also choose like uh, these four like tiles that have start game conditions. So it could be the resources that you get. It could be, you know, some additional technology, something else. And you will choose from four of them, two of them that you want to use. And then those will have four different numbers on them showing the different tiles that you can start on. And when you start with uh, three dice, you get to choose three of those to place your dice on pretty much one per number and all this put together. And even more than that, when you're playing with less than four players, you also randomly use these same types of tiles to place the dice of the other color. So they're going to still cause you to pay more cocoa in order to use certain spaces and really influence a lot of your considerations when it comes to that. Yeah, a lot of flexibility in the setup there. One of the things that I really enjoy about the game is that a lot of it feels very recursive, Mm -hmm. I think is the word that I want to use. A lot of mechanics interact with one another. You've got workers and advancing your workers, and then when you ascend your workers, you also go up on the Avenue of the Dead track, which is affected by the Noble Villa action space. Mm-hmm. Um, temples can interact with the Avenue of the Dead track. Building interacts with the temples. Worshipping interacts with the temples, but can also give you exploration tokens, which interact with other things. It, it's not siloed. Yeah. Like Sometimes with you know worker placement, resource management style games, I feel like, okay, I'm going to go on this track and that's not going to interact with any part of anything else. Or I'm going to go over here and I'm not going to touch that half of the board. There's none of that in this. Everything is very interconnected, uh, very interwoven. And so you're going to be moving up on a lot of different parameters all the time just from spillover effects, Yeah, uh, which feels really good. You know, again, you still have clearly defined strategies. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going for a, a strategy that emphasizes constructing the pyramid, there are certain things that you're going to do. So you're not going to focus quite as much probably on the Avenue of the Dead or even on raising your temple position. But you are going to get temple position just as an ancillary benefit of building the pyramid. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's a solid example of game design and how everything can reinforce 
each other. Yeah, and the templates themselves are also just really interesting because they give you different benefits from like more cocoa to resources to just straight up points. And sometimes you just might need, well, a resource right now in order to do this. So I'm going to do, you know, this that also gets me something up on the temple track so I can then pay for this and then do that and like have these little bit of synergies, which can be really cool when you find the right one where it's just like, I just needed this one little resource and then like, ooh, I can get it right here. Boom. And then like everything just falls into place. Right. Very satisfying. Not everything is perfect, though. Not every game is perfect, as we're fond of saying. And Teotihuacan is no exception. One of the things, one of the gripes Mm -hmm. that I have had multiple times about this game is that building as a strategy is overpowered. I think, In other words, he's lost four times to me in a building strategy. Right. I have tried any number of things. I've tried going heavy on temples. I've tried going heavy on ascensions. I've tried focusing on masks, which are a type of token you can collect that's like set collection, and it Mm -hmm. has the benefit of you can score that at the end of every single round instead of just at the end of the game. So like, I've tried lots of different permutations to beat a building strategy. And yeah, okay, fine. Maybe I'm just bad at this game. I will grant you that that's a possibility. (laughs) But the fact that Jacob can like sleepwalk to a victory of like, 300 points to 200 points by just doing a building strategy you know it it feels kind of bad like it makes me think that there is something just inherently powerful about a building strategy and yeah you can say that that's the core conceit of the game like that's the unique physical thing at the center of literally center of the game board Mm -hmm. you know but it it still sucks like you want to have a variety of viable strategies yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I haven't seen anything else win yet. Everything's been like a building focus strategy. I think it's probably better to have like a little bit more of a balanced strategy. But uh, even, you know, two players, it can be really easy to get siloed. But even in four players, like when I played that, the building strategy won. Right. Even if a winning strategy is building plus X, mm-hmm. it's still at its core a building strategy. Exactly. Though, additionally to that, I think... And this is why I don't really count those first two games that we played as real losses for Greg, is that the rules are formatted and just written a little bit not that well. Janky. There are things in places that you don't expect them to be. Just looking through the rules, like our first game set up, we played it on stream, I believe, and... We fucked up so So badly. There were so many thank you to the YouTube commenters for gently chiding us. With entire paragraphs worth of things that we did wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then when we played again, we still got even more wrong. That's that's the thing for me is that, you know, I reviewed the rule book and yeah, you know, you're you're reviewing the rule book and learning the rules at the start of a new game and you're you're under a lot of pressure. You're trying to read the rules really fast, explain the rules really fast so that you can get into playing the game, damn it. And so, okay, yeah, everybody's going to mess that up. The fact that when we sat down with a clearly defined, like, paragraph of a person telling us specifically, explicitly what we were doing wrong, and then still did things wrong after taking a little bit more time and after reviewing our faults, like, that just speaks to me to an issue with the rule book. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the way it's laid out, a lot of times, you know, clarifications aren't as clear as they could be rules aren't where you would expect them to be so you know if you're looking for something that talks about how coco can be used to pay for workers actions that's not going to be in the location where you would expect it it's going to be in some sidebar two pages later or something like that so Mm -hmm. just clearer yeah somehow i I don't know i'm not an editor but 
it speaks to it when we missed one of the key rules of the game. Like paying for stuff. Paying for stuff with Coco. <laughs> we literally missed that like the first time we played. Yeah. We played through everything and didn't pay for a single damn thing with Coco. And we're like, oh my God, Coco well, is we so did, plentiful. We did pay our workers their salaries yeah. at the end of each round. Yeah. But we didn't actually pay for any actions in the middle of things. So we we're like, why do we care about the green temple? That's just cocoa. We don't need that much cocoa. Exactly. And then we find out we're like, oh God, we need so much cocoa. <laughs> cocoa is the limiting factor. Oh no. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the rule book could be laid out a little bit better. Yep. I completely agree. Overall though, I still like this game. I think it's good. I think it's unique. It's got a lot of interesting mechanics, a lot of stuff that I haven't seen in a lot of other places. It is fun to play. So, at the end of the day, on our Dragon's Demise patented rating system of skip it, play it, or buy it, I am going to give it a buy it. I'm not going to go for the outliers. It's not a top shelf game, and I'm certainly not going to burn it, but I think it's a comfortable buy it. You know, it's reasonable for a game of this size, of this weight. I didn't buy it myself. This was a Christmas gift from Jacob, but I am not unhappy to have it in my collection. Oh, there we go. I am also going to echo that. I am definitely going to give it a buy it. I think that this was a really interesting game. It really does click with me. I, I think that it, it works really well with just how I think and just moving all the all the uh, the pieces around, increasing the levels of the different workers is so unique, so much fun. Having the resource management there and like trying to figure out how to best get the resources before you get to a certain spot or like you know how to balance moving this worker to the here and getting enough cocoa in order to pay for this worker to go somewhere else. That's all really, really interesting. And because of that, I think I am definitely going to give this a buy it. Well, there you go. Double buy it review. That is our review of Teotihuacan. Quick on the outro here, we're going to give you some games that we think are similar. Uh, if you like Teotihuacan, check these out and vice versa. Uh, the first is Crusader Thy Will Be Done. I think this is a game that has a lot of similarities in worker management. It's got more of what I would consider a classical rondelle, where each player specifically has their action circle, mm-hmm. but you're you're moving around it in very much the same way, managing which of your worker tokens are where is equally important. You know, grouping them up can lead to more powerful actions, spreading them out can lead to a more versatile strategy. Very similar strategic considerations there, just with a little bit of added like territory management in the form of the map of Europe. So if you're looking for something that has a lot of the same worker management strategies, but maybe doesn't get quite so in the weeds with the minutia of, okay, what level are my worker and managing when they ascend, check out Crusader, they will be done. All right. Uh, And then I would highly recommend also checking out uh, Scoville. So it's a little bit of a tangential recommendation on this. Like it has some similarities. You're still moving your workers around. You've got like the variable placement of the different peppers and uh, you're able to like almost block people through certain ways. Like, you know, whether it's Teotihuacan, you're you're making them pay more cocoa that they don't have in order to use something or in Scoville, you're just getting in their way. And then you, you still have like the different resources that you're collecting through the different peppers and things like that. And how you get them is by being in certain places at certain times. So there, there are a certain number of similarities there and it's just a very good game. And there you have it. That's our review of Teotihuacan. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope that you enjoyed it. 
Be sure to tune in this week on Wednesday as we are tackling game 10 of Darterstone, getting very close to the end of our adventure and our town being built. So that should be a lot of fun. And then on Friday, we've got our stream of Gloomhaven. So definitely check that out. Otherwise, WashingCon is coming up soon. So if you are interested in coming to WashingCon this year, it is September 7th and 8th, and it's at the Georgetown University Hotel and Convention Center. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have some awesome games and some really, really cool things to try out. Be sure to check out our legacy polls, which are going on right now on WashingCon's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages to get your vote on what is going to be the WashingCon legacy game. And finally, be sure to join us next week for part one of our Gen Con recap.